You're listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with the independent federal member for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Your Voice. This episode, we'll be talking about women's policy, prosperity, and productivity. I'm Zoe Daniel, and this is a podcast that we started before the 2022 federal election to discuss policy issues affecting Goldstein and Australia more broadly. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet. In my case, that's the Bunurung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present on unceded Aboriginal land. Now, as I said, today we'll be discussing economic policy as it relates to women and the opportunity to not only increase economic productivity, but also to address the growing skills shortage across Australia. My guest is Dr. Angela Jackson, an economist with expertise across health, disability, gender and fiscal policy. She was once the Deputy Chief of Staff to the Australian Finance Minister, and she's currently the Lead Economist at Impact Economics and Policy. Angela, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Zoe, and great to be here. There has been a huge amount happening on the women prosperity economic policy front. I think given the timing of this podcast, we might go straight to the budget and just do a quick review. As most people would be aware, there was a specific uh, women's element to the budget and there is an intent by the government to view most of its policies through a, a prism of gender, which I think is a great thing and that's something that I've been looking for. What did you think of the budget for women and what were the big ticket items in your mind? Yeah, so the women's budget statement, which was uh, disbanded um, when Tony Abbott uh, came into power, was brought actually back under the Morrison government. So they reintroduced a women's budget statement to really outline, well, how are women going in Australia right now from an economic perspective um, and across a number of indicators? And what are we doing in this budget to help address it? That was really off the back of the October 2020 budget, which obviously pretty much ignored women and their economic plight during the COVID-19 pandemic. And off the back of that, uh, in the next budget, they reinstituted the women's budget statement. But what we've seen over you know, the course of the last couple of years, uh, this is now the third one we've had, um, is it's really got a lot more sophisticated in terms of the analysis that's done. Um, and in this budget in particular, in terms of the investments uh, that are included in the budget. So um, it was good to see. Um, and I think you know it is still a work in progress in terms of the implementation of what we call gender responsive budgeting that we can talk a little bit more about. Um, but it was certainly a, another good step in the right direction. And, and the initiatives included, you know, expansion in terms of childcare subsidies, um, which will hopefully hopefully um, increase the number of women working by around 37,000 full-time equivalent, um, those increased subsidies and the expansion in paid parental leave, um, which will really is a bit of a game changer in, in terms of changing, you know, who cares um, and who works within families. So you mentioned gender responsive budgeting. I heard Katie Gallagher, the finance minister and minister for women, speak the day after the budget. She talked about um, trying to sort of entrench this so much in the budget that it becomes more and more difficult for future governments to 
unpick. And as you said, this concept was sort of axed by one coalition government, brought back in by another, and now this government's trying to really embed it. What does that gender-responsive budgeting mean and how do you sort of engage the community in why we need it? So really what it does is it it tries to look at policies and spending initiatives um, within the context of, well, how does it impact different groups within society? And obviously gender-responsive budgeting focuses primarily on how policies might impact women and men differently. Um, we know that, you know, women are less likely to work. Uh, women are more likely to, to undertake unpaid caring, and that leads to, you know, a long-term impact in terms of their lifelong economic participation and productivity. And so when we're implementing policies, we want to make sure that we understand how they're going to influence um, equity between men and women. And so gender responsive budgeting does that through a number of mechanisms. The first is by setting targets. So, um, you know, in Australia, we're still a couple of hundred years away from achieving gender equity in terms of, you know, all those targets in terms of pay equity, in terms of women working at the same rate of men, um, and across a number of metrics. So it sets some targets and says, well, this is what we want to aim for as a country in terms of gender equity. Um, And that's really important part of the process that the government hasn't quite got to yet, but still needs to get to in terms of those targets. And then what you do is when government policies come up and the budget process is you evaluate those policies in terms of what is that gender impact going to be. So you look at, well, um, will this policy in healthcare, um, will this additional funding help in terms of closing some of those gender gaps and achieving gender equity or will it not? Um, And you might think about tax policy, for example, stage three tax cuts through that prism as well. Who will this benefit um, and how? And how will it change that dynamic between men and women. And what that then allows you to do is make sure that the policies are consistent with achieving gender equity um, across Australia. And then the final part is around evaluating the actual impact of those policies. So we can hope that things are going to move the dial in one direction or another, but it's important to also evaluate current government spending to see how it's impacting different groups at at a point in time. Mm. So when we talk about um, things like you know, universal childcare, which is the sort of most obvious example. I think one of the frustrations has been that it always reverts to a cost argument rather than a benefit argument. So, you know, people like me and you and others have been sort of advocating for the benefits that this can produce for our economy, as well as the evidence, social and educational benefits. Where do you think we're at as a society in Australia on recognising that this is an economic issue, not kind of welfare for women. I think it's certainly shifted um, and I think that's, you know, particularly in the last few years, I think it has been really seen through the welfare prism and there is that community attitude, well, if you have kids, you should pay for them um, without thinking about what that actually might mean for families and the ability of women in particular to participate in work um, and what that then has an impact on in terms of their long-term earnings. Um, But, you know, I'm not going to say that the battle has been won, but certainly I think you've seen 
the narrative change, both with the previous Morrison government, um, you know, the narrative changed, I think, under them as well. They started to talk about childcare and, and improving subsidies in the context of lifting participation. Um, but certainly in terms of the Albanese government, you can see a real commitment to, you know, even exploring universal childcare as a means to help participation of women uh, in the economy and that that has a long-term benefit. And look, it is a it is a complex and I understand there'd be listeners out there who are like, well, I paid for it and I organised it. Why shouldn't, you know, the next generation do the same thing? The reality is it's really holding women back. Um, and if we want to look at our daughters, um, as I do, and want to say you are and will be equal, uh, we have to make these investments because there's no doubt that paid parental leave and childcare are two of the biggest blocks in terms of women, you know, are finally achieving that sort of gender equal outcome that we were all, well, I, my generation was promised, but didn't actually eventuate when reality struck and you did have children and, um, you know, you realised, well, actually I'm not equal. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, look, we all have the stories of, well, it wasn't worth working more than a couple of days a week because the cost of care basically negates your wage and, you know, many women are in that that situation today. As far as the government's policies on childcare and the timing of those policies and also paid parental leave, what are your thoughts about those things? I mean, you know, again, it sort of feels like, oh, it's never the right time. It's always too expensive. You know, we'll just keep pushing it back or somewhat delaying it. And I understand that there are workforce issues, particularly in early childhood education and care, that are limiting the, the speed with which that particular change can be implemented. But also paid parental leave, it, it's happening, um, but it's sort of happening by 2026 um, for 26 weeks. And in the context of the world, it's not that expensive. You know, are we still sort of in this push-pull of can we just rip the Band-Aid off it and, and do it if we're going to do it? What What's what's underpinning that delay, do you think, and is that valid? Well, I mean, look, I think at the moment that, you know, they are trying to balance obviously the broader not wanting to add to inflation um, and so they're seeing all spending as, you know, it's really got a pass the the muster in terms of does it lift productivity and participation um but it is a good question and, and i think it all goes to you know we can talk about paid parental leave um for a moment talking about childcare, um you know is one aspect um of the measures but that delay you know is significant um and even then we'll only have uh, at the minimum wage um which probably isn't adequate um particularly for men to take it up in great numbers. So there is a question around how much we invest in these schemes and whether we're really committed um, to having that sort of social insurance model that can really support families in that early years um, to take the time and to share the care in a way that will facilitate women to work more into the future um, and to have a more equal distribution of that unpaid caring work. Um, in terms of childcare, as you said, there are constraints in terms of the workforce and in terms of scaling up. Um, mm -hmm. And the changes that were announced will benefit primarily higher income earners as well, which I think is something that perhaps hasn't got a, a lot of um, airplay. Um, and they have still, you know, not 
extended that universal childcare to um, children of parents who aren't working or not participating. So the most disadvantaged kids um, at the other end. So, you know, there are, they're certainly not perfect policies, put it that way. Um, and I think maybe in this space, we get excited with anything, um, but you're right. We need to keep pushing for more and for better because there is no reason why we shouldn't have the best policies in this space in the world. We're a very wealthy country um, and they are investments that will pay off uh, in a multitude of ways, both economically, but also socially. So I guess the, that is a question of well, what's the delay Um I guess the flip side of that is there's been so little movement for so long that any movement feels like something to get excited about. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, I, it, I there's lots of small steps happening in a range of areas at the moment. Some of them are larger steps than others, but I, I guess all of those small steps when there's been so little movement for so long does sort of add up to, to something. Um, and... I think also opens the door for more changes um, because once you've opened the door, it's much easier to push things through it. When it comes to the access to childcare, early childhood education and care for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and disadvantaged families and this activity test um, that has been applied where, as you said, people who aren't working or who aren't working enough haven't been able to access care for their kids. So I've advocated for the abolition of the activity test um, if we want to have universal care. And uh, obviously those families in many ways are the ones that most require the care in terms of the children having access to early childhood education. Do you think there's an argument for abolishing the activity test or for really narrowing it down? Um, yeah, look, I do. And this is actually an area we've just done a report on for the Mindaroo Foundation and Thrive by Five on this space and, and on the activity test. So I'll admit before doing it, I didn't have a full appreciation for exactly how bad this policy was in terms of who it was disadvantaging and, and how. We know there's a clear link between access to early childhood education and care and education and um, early childhood development outcomes. It's really well established. Um, and yet we have this policy in place that limits access uh, for the most disadvantaged children um, in the most disadvantaged households. And it seems just beyond ridiculous when you actually look at it and you look at the numbers of kids that are missing out um, on early childhood education and care and that investing in those kids is going to pay huge dividends into the future in terms of their outcomes um, and their productivity and their participation um, and that we're not making that investment seems it's outrageous. Now, the, the movement in terms of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children is welcomed but it's pretty minor. And so mm. what they've done is move from 24 hours a fortnight, which is effectively two days of care, to 36 hours a fortnight. Um, anyone who uses childcare knows that you don't get three days a fortnight. You get a certain number of days a week. Um, and so in reality, it's not necessarily going to increase access by that much um, for those children. Um, I think it is something we really need to look at. And it look, it's it's a difficult space and um, we're hoping to do some more work around this, around what the actual participation effects are. Um, but really it's almost as if you're punishing children for their parents not participating. At the same time, you're making it much harder for those parents to participate because they don't have access to the care to then look for work um, and to even, you know, organise their lives in a way mm -hmm. that they need to or, or to, um, you know, have the space 
to start participating. So it's a pretty self-defeating policy, I think, and something in terms of that move towards universal, um, you know, while getting rid of the high effective marginal tax rates for women who are working three days a week is clearly also a priority, it's hard to go past making sure these kids have access to this quality early education and care. When we know, I mean, the evidence is so clear in terms of the benefits, particularly for kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. It's really, really clear. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, I fully support <laughs> the activity. Yeah. It's a really interesting area when you start sort of delving down into our cultural mentality around this. So, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the fact that we have universal uh, infant and primary school and, and high school and we accept as a society that we will pay for the schooling of our children, yet when it comes to early childhood education and care, which are arguably the most formative and important years of a child's life, we balk at covering that as a society. It's it's sort of a systems change that we need to recognise that this is actually hugely beneficial for all of us to do it. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, it, and it is interesting to try and unpick what the, the, those cultural factors are. And some of the arguments are that, oh, if women have childcare, then they'll just go and play tennis. Um, so there's a bit of a degree of misogyny there maybe um, in terms of what women's motivation may be. Um and I would just note that the last time you survey once again found that women do more unpaid and paid work than men, about half an hour a day, and so have less free time. Um, so we're not just out playing tennis. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. We have less time for tennis than our male um, our male partners. So, yeah, there's a degree, I think, of, um, you know, this is the woman's work and she should be looking after kids if, you know, um, rather than actually seeing this as an investment. And as you said, we don't balk at paying for people, for children when they're five, going to school. Um, yet we know, particularly for these kids from disadvantaged backgrounds, that the key investments need to be made at the ages of two, three and four, um, but we're not making them. Mm. Could I go briefly to the um, Fair Work Act amendments, which will hit the table, uh, well, they've already hit the table, but they'll hit the debate um, in the parliament next week. And and certainly I have spent my entire time since parliament broke last week uh, looking at this legislation and the explanatory mem- memorandum and having various briefings on it. Now, there's there are lots of gender-related elements to this legislation around um, feminized industries um, empowering women in order to increase wages in areas like aged care, early childhood education and care, among other things. In many ways, those elements have been overshadowed by the multi-employer bargaining debate, which is a controversial element of the bill. But just to sort of drill down into the elements of the this um, set of amendments that might might benefit women. Do you think that, for example, enabling supported bargaining in those industries and multi-employer bargaining in industries like aged care, early childhood education and care, and the various other care settings will have the desired effect of in- increasing wages, making those industries more attractive for people to work in and therefore revaluing women's work, which is kind of part of the point. Yeah, so look, it's an interesting question and it's not 
exactly in my area of expertise, so I don't want to. But in, in terms of what I do know, I enterprise bargaining um, needs to be and and bargaining between you know groups of workers and employers um, is a very effective way of getting agreements, lifting productivity, and lifting wages. Um, and so that negotiation process uh, can produce significant benefits for both sides. And what we've seen in Australia is a completely breakdown. Um, and so enterprise bargaining, which was at the centre of our workplace relations system, has completely broken down and that's impacted workers' wages. But I think it's also impacting in terms of broader productivity um, improvements because you're breaking down that dialogue between employers and employees. Um, that's an important dialogue for getting improvements in the way the business might operate um, and lots of other factors. Now, I guess what the government's trying to say is, well, look, in some of these cases, in some of these industries, the nature of the services is actually quite homogeneous. And I think that's probably true, particularly in aged care and childcare. Um, and but the the costs of doing this individualized bargaining at that level are so high um, that we're not seeing it come to fruition. And so people are just basing it on the award. Um, and so we're not getting those benefits for either the workers or the employers. And so there is probably an economy-wide benefit from changes that get people back to the table, um, even if it means bringing together more groups of employers um, and employees and to negotiate better outcomes. And I think, you know, it's industrial relations in this country is seen as this really, you know, it's a big fight. Um, when really, if you look sort of internationally, it's sort of the German model, it's a much closer, you know, people are working together. Um, and I think it is when you get people working together and employers and employees working together that you get the best outcomes for everybody. Um, and we certainly need something to change because the reality is, you know, wages have been absolutely lacklustre, productivity growth has been lacklustre. Um, and so we do need, I think, some sort of shake up in terms of the way in which the industrial framework's working. Yeah, so can you just put your pointy-headed economist hat on for a moment and explain to the audience how uh, wages and productivity interact with each other and also how that relates to inflation? Because I think often the knee-jerk response is, oh, well, we can't put wages up because that just increases costs for employers and everything becomes too expensive and, and we kind of stop there in the conversation. Can you yeah. just give us some perspective on that? So what we would call sort of healthy wages growth and what we want to see is where wages are growing at least at the rate of inflation plus productivity improvements. So now I wouldn't say that now because that's we're talking we want to get inflation down, but that that is a level that maintains inflation. So if we think we want inflation to be between two to three percent, um, and you add sort of one percent productivity improvements on average, you want to see wages going up by about three and a half, maybe four percent a year. Um, and that would be healthy wages growth. Now, that's important for the economy because that means your wage earners, your households um, are getting more income and they're feeling more confident, they're spending more, and it helps generate the economic growth. What we saw in the 10 years before the pandemic was that wages were growing at around 2%, so well below that level. And it was one of the major you know, drivers that the Reserve Bank said, you know, this lacklustre wages growth is undermining economic growth. I want to see wages go, wages growth increase. 
The question is how? So what we were told was, oh, unemployment's too high. Well, now unemployment's at three and a half uh, percent, and we're still not really seeing wages growth anywhere near where we would expect to see it uh, when it's so tight. I mean, effectively, the labour market is, I think, at if not pretty much at full employment right now, right? And it's very hard to find workers with suitable skills um, and still have 3.5% unemployed, but whether they're the right workers for the right jobs, you know, is a question mark. So something does need to change and the bargaining framework clearly has a role to play in that um, in terms of driving higher wages and outcomes um, for workers. And it is a balance. So it is about not necessarily saying we should give all the power back to the unions and let's just have, you know, that, but there is, it's clearly gone too far the other way. And that was undermining economic growth before the pandemic and will again. So I think, you know, whether this is the perfect bit of legislation, I, I think, but I think certainly um you have to try something <laughs> to try and get things moving and and maybe the answer is to have a sunset clause and a review to see how it, it actually looks in practice and whether the doomsday scenario comes out or whether or not um you know we have entered i think you know the nature of industrial relations in this country is very different to what it was in the 1970s unions are no you know it's not that militant union you know it's a much more professional like the, the, they're a different outfit right it's a different uh, movement. So I think, yeah, I mean, my view would be it's probably worth a go, um, but you'd probably want to review it to make sure there weren't adverse outcomes. Yes. And funny you should mention that because a review is something that I've suggested to the government and I'm not the only one. What kind of time period do you think would be reasonable to have a sense of the economic impact of this kind of policy change? I think you'd want probably two years to see because these things will take time, um, you know, for agreements to come up um, and to see what the impacts are. Um, you know, at least two years, if not three. I guess a lot of enterprise agreements or these agreements are sort of three-year agreements. So you'd want to have a good sample to see what the outcomes were. Dr. Angela Jackson is the lead economist at Impact Economics and Policy. Angela, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Zoe. It's a pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on Your Voice. You can learn more about Zoe and her work in the Australian Parliament at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, 677 Nepean Highway, Brighton East, Victoria.